0: Beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Well, good morning and welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School and our Wisdom of the Soul class. And uh, we're going to continue with our suppositions this week. I have a handout that we started a couple of weeks ago as we discussed the wisdom traditions of the world and uh, so-called perennialism, the perennial philosophy, also known as Prisca Theologia. So this is mysticism in general, and uh, it's uh, my attempt to aggregate uh, a lot of schools that share these basic suppositions. Having listed many or most of those uh, wisdom traditions, I thought that we would run down some of the, you know, threads, so to speak, that unify them and connect them, or harmonize them, if not unify them. And uh, we've gone through a couple of those, and today we'll continue with the whole idea of the mystic's path. What is the mystic's path? What was Christ perhaps referring to when he said, I am the way, the way and the light? What is that about? Is it a how to, a guide, uh, how to grow, evolve, how to orient yourself spiritually and recognize the values and the ethics implied or inherent in the wisdom tradition? Or is it more literally a connection between? The material world and the ethereal domains, the spiritual domains, and maybe a both, maybe a both. Remember, we don't. I'm always a little cautious about either ors. <laughs> so a little of this, a little of that. We'll discuss that today. I want to remind you that uh, we're on YouTube, posting the full video. Uh, simply search "Ageless Wisdom Mystery School." And if you'll subscribe, uh, then you'll get a notice when new programs come up each week. Uh, usually, I post them by Monday or Tuesday at the latest. And uh, appreciate you subscribing to the YouTube channel. And then there's also a podcast. Also, just search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School in your favorite podcast application or player or directory, and uh, you'll find that there. Apple gives you an opportunity, Apple Podcasts, to drop a review. There's another player called Pod Chaser that will accept reviews, and those are also very much appreciated. It's, it's not just a matter of ego. It really drives keyword searches. So when you subscribe or when you click like or when you leave a comment, all of that impacts the algorithm of the particular podcast channel or the YouTube channel. So. Keyword search. We we move up in keyword searches when you do that, and also if you share with a friend, that is really appreciated. So thank you for that. And let's, uh, having said that, move into our opening meditation. What do you say? So get nice and comfortable in your chairs. Sit up straight, shoulders back. A gentle awakening as you. Wake up in the morning, naturally and normally. A-floating up, almost. And three. Eyes open, wide awake, back in the room, feeling fine. rested and refreshed and all supercharged and ready to rock and roll. Feeling better than before. Feeling better than before. Good. Welcome back. Okay. Uh, Let me bring up a screen share. Uh, let's see. I think this is the one I want. And that's where we left off the bullet point unity over dualism known as Advaita. I think we touched on this at the end of the class last week. Advaita is Sanskrit word meaning no second, not two. Advaita. So this is known in philosophy as non- Duality. Very similar to panentheism, panpsychism, and monism. Words that uh, you see appearing just above at the very top here, which we talked about last week. The unified energy source of all things, spirit, that is ultimately eternal, infinite, unchanging, and self shining. We talked about that. Both immanent and transcendent. The one in the many, and this brings up Jung's collective unconscious. That's another idea that on some level we're all plugged in together. Everything touches everything, everything's connected. Panentheism, we've discussed. Panpsychism, we only touched on briefly. That's the idea that everything has a mind, that there is one mind that is undifferentiated. But every living thing. And many would say every thing, rock, soil, river, sky, shares in that one mind. All right. Clearly the plant kingdom has a mind, it's conscious, it responds to its environment. And the animal kingdom and its extension to human beings who are really part of the animal kingdom, but I would say evolving into its own kingdom. And I'm one who subscribes to the idea that there will be a kingdom emerging from that as evolution continues. <laughs> it's something we rarely consider, that we're still evolving, right? It's not just the uh, coronavirus that's evolving and mutating. Everything evolves and mutates and changes. You know, I want you to get a booster because the damn virus is changing. And a virus is not even a living thing until it comes into your body. It occupies this bizarre place between living and, and non-living. So everything evolves, everything changes. And above the human kingdom, many mystics talk about an emerging kingdom of conscious souls. Something I mentioned for your consideration. Wouldn't that be nice? Is it possible we're seeing a world that is getting tired of authoritarianism, fascism, neo-Nazis, cruelty, hatred, divisiveness, racism? Aren't we getting exhausted? I think so. And so perhaps we're standing at the verge of the emerging kingdom of conscious souls. And I'll leave it to you to think about what that means. And uh, then there's monism, which we've contrasted with monotheism. So today, another one of these threads or principles that runs through mysticism and all of its various wisdom traditions is the idea of unity over dualism. And again, advaita or non-duality is another way of referring to it. Now. To move uh, to expand on that, I'll say we have this next bullet point: love wisdom, sometimes called love truth in mysticism. It's hyphenated. Theosophists often will hyphenate love truth. Uh, they refer to it as second ray, and I haven't talked about the seven ray system of Alice Bailey and uh, theosophy in general. It's the idea that divinity emanates in seven different frequencies, just like white light is divided into seven colors, or an octave in music has seven notes and then repeats. So love-wisdom is second ray. It is the consciousness, the awareness, the love, the wisdom, the truth that stands between spirit and matter between energy and mass, between God and man, between heaven and earth. It's the path that we're talking about today, the mystic's path. So love wisdom is the path connecting man to God, an aspirational longing, sometimes known as divine homesickness, in the middle way. A few months back, we did a whole class on the middle way. You can search out if you missed it. The next thread, as we develop this idea a little bit, you know, aspiring to embody virtue is a very central supposition or precept, maybe it's best called a precept in mystical traditions, an attempt to be as much like divinity, God, the absolute, the Godhead as possible, to be perfect. Uh, to be good, probably better said. And so a big part of that is nonviolence. When you consider the basic mystical idea that separation is an illusion, then everyone and everything in this seemingly separated, or this world of separated form, then violence upon another is violence upon yourself for they are you and you are them in spirit. You see, in marriage, you learn soon enough in marriage that winning an argument is a very foolish strategy because if either loses, the marriage suffers. So what is marriage if not a sacrifice of the separated self in favor of a union or at least a harmony? We don't have to. (laughs) We don't have to agree. So harmony over conflict and cruelty and hostility and violence is a very important concept in the wisdom traditions. And we do this by means of compassion. And by the way, that includes self-compassion. Kindness. I had kindness demonstrated to me as a child, but never taught to me. As an adult, I've reflected on why there isn't more in parenting and in schooling about simple kindness, just to be kind. And I'm sure there are some great teachers and great parents that do that. I don't want to use too broad a brush here, but my goodness, uh, given the political landscape, And the way mean, angry, cruel people, their hatred triggers in us hatred. And their anger triggers our anger. And it's very difficult to transcend that. That's a challenge for us. Because we can't wait for everybody to be kind to us before we choose to be kind to them. We have to learn throughout our lives, to return cruelty and anger and hostility and all of its various forms, racism, sexism, all the phobias. When we encounter that, when it's directed at us, we got to learn to take the hit. Again, let it move through you and into the earth. Ground it. Let that energy pass through you. Be the lightning rod. Send it to the earth. Take a breath and respond with kindness. Even if you're mocked for it. And that kindness doesn't have to be a big deal. It could simply be, I understand. I understand how you feel. And maybe in some cases... Yeah, I can see how you'd feel that way. I think there's some merit to that. It's not my feeling, but... Or reportedly a phrase that Buddha often used, Shaktamuni Buddha, the Buddha Gautama Siddhartha Buddha from 2,500 years ago, is said to have used the phrase, that may be. When confronted, when challenged, when ridiculed, imagine being that cool. Just to be able to say, yeah, well, that may be, that's pretty far out. That's a high level of conscious awareness that you have the comfort of your own personal truth and and what you've come to realize that you're not so easily disturbed by the cruelty directed at you by others. Beyond kindness, de-escalation. I think I've mentioned before in this class that for three years, I taught a training on self-awareness that was commissioned by the Orange County Sheriff's Academy, the police academy in Anaheim. And once a month for three years, I'd go down there and teach the deputies and their whole staff, the, the men and women in the jails, not the inmates, but the deputies that worked in the jail right out of the academy, the old-timers as well, the veterans, the sergeants and lieutenants, and the staff, like Crime Lab and forensics and and those people, all took this self-awareness training. I called it uh, internal vigilance. In fact, my book, Fearless Intelligence, came out of that. I wanted to expand the concept of internal vigilance and self-awareness in law enforcement to the general population, concepts that were way outside the 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 purview of law enforcement. So that was also the genesis of the book Fearless Intelligence. But we worked on de-escalation, and one of the ways I talked about it is the difference between assertiveness and impulse control. In other words, when to step forward and assert your authority as a law enforcement officer in the field or in the jail, but also when to step back. And how to de-escalate instead of escalate a situation. And most importantly, how to recognize your emotional feelings such that you don't uh, transfer them to others. So let's say, you know, you have an officer who... uh, uh, had an argument with his spouse and goes to work and, without realizing it, takes it on and this chump that rolled through a stop sign, it escalates. People don't like being pulled over by the cops, and sometimes in their anger and their anxiety, their fears, they get mouthy and say, you know, why aren't you out uh, capturing real criminals? And I pay your salary, and and you're not going to write me a ticket for this, are you? And again, if if, uh, because of the contagious nature of emotions, that triggers the officer. And if he's already having a bad day, that's how people get hurt. That's how people get shot, because their whole belt's just covered with weapons, from uh, the authority of the badge and the uniform, to the ticket book, to the handcuff, to the baton, to fists. They're actually trained on how to beat people up. They're also given a, a a a scale, an ascending scale of of violence. You don't don't reach immediately for the revolver, but they have the revolver and the bullets and the tasers and the and the mace and all of these weapons they're carrying on them at all times. That's pretty intimidating. Well, in our daily life and affairs, we can de-escalate. We can learn to de-escalate as well. Pick your battles. In my domestic counseling, couples counseling, I, also, I, I often see people arguing about the most trivial things. And what is also quite common is what started this argument? And, and each of them will say, well, I don't really remember Well then, what are you arguing about? Well, I don't really remember, but he said, she said, and it's all about the symptoms. They're arguing about the inelegant way they had been arguing. (laughs) It's like take a breath. What's missing is the lack of good communication skills. I'm sure we'll do a class at some point on something they call the heart talk, which is uh, difficult. It's simple, but it's difficult. But incredibly effective once you learn to do it. Let's see, de-escalation, non-violence, of course, and uh, forgiveness. That can be hard. But uh, if you think about our unwillingness to forgive, the idea that I'm not going to let them get away with that, uh, they have to apologize to me before I would even consider reconciling this relationship because they did this horrible thing to me. And I'm going to carry that pain and that hurt forever. Well, how does that hurt them? <laughs> you know, how do they suffer? You're, the, the Carrying a grudge, refusing to forgive, only you suffer. It's just absurd if you think about it. If you reflect on it for a minute, why would we do that? Attributed to Buddha is a story about uh, the angry person. I don't know if this is really a true— Buddha never wrote anything down, just like Christ never wrote anything down. These are oral traditions and got written down hundreds of years later. But supposedly he said that anger and, and holding grudges and being slow to forgive or refusing to forgive It's like an angry person that picks up a hot coal to throw at the other person in hopes that they hit them and burn them with the hot coal. But look who gets burned, (laughs) The, the guy that picked up the hot coal. It's a good story, whoever thought it up. Unity, harmony, diversity. There's another trinity, big on trinities. So the way, in this case, is the harmony between unity and diversity. And diversity often means conflict, but again, it can be seen as a richness and uh, that our lives are enhanced by diversity. Different, I go right to food, right? Different food. Imagine if every restaurant had like an American menu you don't wanna go have some Chinese food, some Italian food, some Greek food, some Indian Oh, we had Indian food the other day, it was delicious. I just love all the different spices and ways of preparing. And people dance in different ways. They pray in different ways. There's so many cultural differences that just because they're different doesn't mean they're in conflict. That's part of that either or mentality that we talked about last week. That the curse of binary dualism and false dichotomies it should be a richness that we embrace. Next bullet point. This is big. Humans have an overshadowing soul beyond the indwelling soul, an aspect of self that's above and free of form. This is very, very, very central to mystical traditions. And it suggests that. Churches tend to, because they're human institutions and they have their own agendas, you see how corrupt many of them are. And I'm not talking about any one religion either. There's corruption in all human institutions. This idea of the oversoul is so central and so critical and denied by organized religions because they put themselves between you and the Godhead. So the only way to know God, to go to God, to harmonize yourself, to aspire to be more spiritual and enjoy more peace and happiness, more kindness, more prosperity, more love, truth, and wisdom is to go through the church. And in fact, the church should serve man, humanity, men and women so that they can serve their own oversoul moving up to the unity of the Godhead, you see. But the church says, no, your soul is an indwelling thing fashioned upon conception by God and tucked inside you someplace we don't know where. And the mystic says, no. The physical body is an emanation of the soul above and free of form. And over the years that I've taught this and shared this, people are often blown away by the concept, my God, you mean my soul is already in heaven? What is all this original sin? And and I'm a sinner, and I'm a bad person, and, and temptation. Well, yeah, the ego needs redemption. The animal body and the animal consciousness That needs redemption, improvement, salvation, if you will, ascension, resurrection, moving on up like the Jeffersons, but not the soul. Soul's where it's always been, no beginning, no end. A matrix of organized energy, a spirit that lives in ashrams or houses, houses of the holy, above and free of form. And this very class, this ongoing free class called The Wisdom of the Soul, is based on this idea that if there is an oversoul, we should be able to stand open and receptive not only to divinity directly from the Godhead, but to the oversoul above in free form. Is that not what our conscience is? A subtle, still, small voice that not only knows right from wrong and good from bad, but has answers to your problems, has insight and understanding to offer you. Where do you think those aha experiences come from? That illumination that arises full-blown and bursts into your awareness. That, well, I, don't, I don't know. I guess that came from the unconscious mind, which is full of garbage. But would that not also be the path into the conscious mind? I mean, it's only one mind. So the wisdom of the soul passes through the unconscious. But there's so much noise up there from the monkey mind and the persona and the ego, the jiva nature the characters and the roles that we play, the stories that we tell ourselves and others about who we are, that you have to get really quiet to hear it. You have to meditate or contemplate to access your intuition, the voice of the soul above and free of form. Now, with that, okay, you should be seeing a graphic with three forms on it. Two interlocking circles on the left, the middle represents a bar magnet, which I'll talk about in a minute, and the uh, graphic on the right is a pendulum. These are basic forms that mystics have used from time out of mind to explain the relationship of the oversoul between spirit and matter, the consciousness aspect. And let's start with the, the two overlapping circles. I think this is fascinating. The Vesica Pisces is a name for the overlapping, the union of these two sets. So the top circle would be spirit, the bottom circle would be matter. The top circle is God, the bottom circle is humanity and the creation of the universe. The overlap is the soul. Remember, Christ in the Bible is referred to as uh, the Son of Man as many times, or actually I think more times, than he's referred to as the Son of God. For Christ represents the love, the center between the Father and the Mother aspect, or the Father and Holy Spirit. That's the Christos, that's the love, that's the Christ consciousness. So that's the overlap of these sets, both spirit and matter, both energy and mass. Vesicapisis means fish bladder. And I guess fish have a bladder that (laughs) looks somewhat like that shape. But the fish itself looks like that shape. And if you were to carefully erase the top circle and the bottom circle, leaving only that oval in the middle and maybe a little bit of the extension on one end so it forms sort of a tail, you can see the fish that many Christians put on their automobiles, that fish shape. And I guess they believe it has something to do with the miracle of the fishes and the loaves, or maybe it's that several of the disciples were fishermen, or that Christ is a fisherman of souls a shepherd to the sheep but it's actually it's actually the vesica piscis it represents both and denies either or and denies separation it makes everything true there's a top circle there's a bottom circle but there's also an overlapping bothness to it Now, the bar magnet has the same qualities. I'm going to come back with a different graphic, so let's skip over the bar magnet, other than to see in the third graphic on the right, the pendulum, which you could think of as the bar magnet beginning to swing. There's a great book by Umberto Eco called Foucault's Pendulum that goes into serious detail about the mystical implications of the pendulum. But it begins with the idea that the top of the pendulum is a point. If you remember geometry from high school, a point, by definition, occupies no space. It's simply a location. So, the top of the pendulum is fixed and unmoving, unmovable, perfectly still, actually beyond existence, for it takes up no space, in theory. It's sort of like the imperative nature of the number zero. You've got to have a zero. What does it mean? It took human beings a long time to figure out the imperative nature of having a null set of zero. So zero, which means nothing in many contexts, also means everything, all that is. Beyond the three dimensions of space and the fourth dimension of time. But extending from that point down to a weighted plum at the end, and then setting that in motion, we get a pendulum that goes back and forth, can also go around and around, which represents the ebb and flow of the physical world, the yin and the yang, the coming and the going, the dualism of the in-breath and the out-breath, the good and the bad, the male and the female gender, the polarities of the bar magnet. And you'll also notice if you move up the pendulum from the weighted plum, I know this is esoteric stuff, but if you like it, fine. If you don't relate to it, that's okay. I find this stuff really deeply fascinating, and it expands my understanding to consider if you move up that string toward the fixed unmoving point from which everything is created or manifested the path gets more and more narrow the way gets straight and there's less chaos and less disorganization and less madness and and, and frustration in your life as you approach the perfect peace and the absolute stillness out of which everything that this pendulum represents comes. Let me quickly bring up the pendulum and then we'll or the bar magnet rather. Okay. Father Spirit is causative. That's the only reason gender is overlaid. You You might say, well, mystics often talk about God as Father, Mother, All That Is or God, Goddess, All That Is the idea that The source of all things is a man, is a bit primitive, barbaric, prehistoric. So why would the ancients have done that, referred to the Father in heaven? Why would Christ talk about the Father? And then Mother Earth, Gaia, the mother matter at the other end of things, the receptive manifestation of the Father. Only because in nature, the male is assertive, causative, bright, colorful, going out to bring in the bacon, and the female is receptive. She is camouflaged. She is the nest keeper. She brings forth the life. She then nurtures that life, protects the children while dad's out gallivanting around. We see this in nature. These were the roles that humans played until 60 or 80 years ago. And now we're trying to do a better job of finding the balance of male and female energies within each of us. But beyond the positive and negative, the yin and the yang, of the polarities of this bar magnet, the middle here is the whole magnetic field around it. That's what unifies what you might think of as opposites in the extreme ends of the poles. This is why the bar magnet is such a beautiful, mystical symbol, because you have what seem to be opposite energies, but they're not opposing. They're more like two sides of the same thing, two sides of the same coin, two ends of the same bar magnet, but what unifies them is the middle, just like the overlapping, the piscis of those two circles, don't you see? Or the string that connects the top of the pendulum with the bottom of the pendulum. That's the middle way. That's our topic for today. The mystic's path is all about the soul, above and free of form. Does it indwell? Yes, as a reflection of your oversoul already in heaven. You see? And so I put a big heart here and a big splashy. (laughs) a bright star in the center. This is the sun, the soul, the consciousness aspect between spirit and matter. And so again, I offer those to you just as a way of expanding your awareness and making it easier to consider that beyond the Trinity, which is where we started this class in February, and all of the different variations of that Trinity, The first three of the seven rays, the substantial primary rays of that seven ray system. I don't think we'll get to the other four anytime soon. It gets real esoteric to talk about the rest of the seven rays, but just to know the first three correspond to this trinity. That the mystic's path, or when Christ says, I am the way, he's saying, I represent love, consciousness, wisdom, truth, awareness between the Creator and its creation.